I invite you to open your Bible to 2 Chronicles chapter 18. If you are using the uh, Bible in the rack in front of you, it's on page 318. Worked out kind of nicely there. 2 Chronicles 18. I was just completing my second year of high school in Phoenix, Arizona. Everything was going great. Well, as, as good as it can for a sophomore. I had made the tennis team two years in a row. I was a member of the junior varsity track team. I had already been in one all-school play. I was getting good grades. I had made a lot of friends in a high school of almost 3,000, and I was ready for a summer of swimming, horseback riding, mountain climbing, desert biking, tin can shooting, and church camp at Hume Lake in California. I was 16 years old. I had my driver's license. I was set for life. <laughs> and then one day my dad gathered my brothers and sister and I together and announced to us that we were going to have an exciting summer. We were going to move. I quickly reviewed my agenda for a fun summer and moving was not on it. Dad explained to my brothers and sister and me that he had accepted a call to pastor a little country church in the middle of Illinois, a place called Groveland. It might as well have been Never Neverland as far as I was concerned. Life as I knew it was over. How could my parents pull me out of West Phoenix High School just as I was hitting my stride? How could my dad pull me out of the wild, wild west where men were men and where boys climbed mountains so that we could go and live in one of the most boring parts of the country? Within a matter of weeks, I was standing in a bean field, <laughs> downwind of someone's barn, savoring lingering summer breezes watching Farmer Dooley's one-legged goose hop to the pond, thinking, where am I? And why am I here? The answer was not long in coming. I was right where God wanted me to be. I was there because the Groveland Missionary Church was where God wanted my dad and mom to serve him. I was there because that community and that church was where God chose to prepare me in significant ways for life and service to him. Proverbs 19.21 tells us, many are the plans of a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. It's a good thing that God does not always give us what we want. 
Second Chronicles chapter 17 through 20 tell the story of the reign of King Jehoshaphat. King Jehoshaphat was one of the chronicler's favorite kings. He gives him four chapters. Many of the other kings barely get honorable or dishonorable mention. We're going to focus our attention this morning on chapter 18. Second Chronicles chapter 18 is a portrait of the effectiveness of the will of God in accomplishing its intent. God's unique ability to accomplish exactly what he desires in our lives and within his world. The word of God for us this morning is this. That knowledge of the will of God must be allowed to affect every aspect of our lives. All that we know about God, all that he has made known to us, must influence everything we think and do. Knowledge of the will of God must be allowed to affect every aspect of our lives. And the chapter from Jehoshaphat's life will explain why. Together with chapter 17, the first three verses <clears throat> of chapter 18 establish that it is the will of God that has made us who we are. And we are accountable for what we do with what he has done for us. Jehoshaphat was a very devout and a very prosperous king. But at the very beginning of the Jehoshaphat story, the author of this text makes it absolutely clear that all that Jehoshaphat was and all that Jehoshaphat accomplished, he was and he accomplished, the text says in verse 3, because the Lord was with him. The fact that the Lord was with Jehoshaphat explains Jehoshaphat. If we look back just one chapter, chapter 17, verse 4, we see that he followed the commandments of God and he did not act like Israel did. So in verse 5, the Lord firmly established the kingdom under his control and all of Judah gave him gifts until he had an abundance of wealth and honor. In verses 6 and 7 of chapter 17, we see that the chronicler goes out of his way to make it clear that Jehoshaphat's mind was firmly set on the ways of the Lord. And very early in his reign, he saw to it that the word of God was being taught throughout the cities of Judah. So evident was the presence and blessing of the Lord upon him that according to verse 10... The fear of the Lord was upon all the kingdoms of the lands around Judah, and they did not go to war with him. As a matter of fact, if we keep reading, verse 11 makes it clear that the Philistines and the Arabians were so impressed, they even brought him gifts. So it's not surprising, as verse 12 tells us, to learn that Jehoshaphat kept growing greater and greater and greater. But then he made an alliance with King Ahab. 
Verse 1 of chapter 18 picks up right where verse 5 of chapter 17 left off. We know that because the wording is almost identical. 18.1 reads, even though Jehoshaphat had an abundance of wealth and honor, he entered into a marriage alliance with King Ahab. This is where Jehoshaphat's son married Ahab's daughter. Well, the text of verse 2 tells us that after a, f a few years of this joyous union, Jehoshaphat went down to Ahab at Samaria. This is a key verb here because this event marks the beginning of Jehoshaphat's descent. Jehoshaphat went down to Ahab at Samaria and King Ahab slaughtered sheep and cattle in abundance for him and for the people who were with him in order to gain his support against Ramoth-Gilead. Ramoth-Gilead was a border city that Ahab wanted. So Ahab, the king of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, verse 3, Will you go with me to Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat replies, I am as you. Except we know from chapter 17 that he is not. He says, my people are as your people. But they're not. He says, I will join you for the battle. Count us in. What was he thinking? Remember, according to chapter 17, Jehoshaphat already had an abundance of wealth and honor, and the kingdoms around Judah were not even thinking of going to war with him. And we know that Jehoshaphat was demonstrably concerned for the word and the work of God. And the writer has told us that his kingdom was markedly unlike Israel. Why is Jehoshaphat getting involved with Ahab? That this alliance was not what God desired is clear from the first part of chapter 19. I will give you a spoiler alert here. In chapter 19, verse 1, we read that when Jehoshaphat returned home safely to Jerusalem, Jehu, the son of Hanani the seer, went out to meet him. And he said to King Jehoshaphat, just who do you think you are? Are you supposed to help the wicked? Why are you joining forces with those who hate the Lord? And then as my youngest daughter would have put it many years ago, you're in big trouble, mister. <laughs> the text says unequivocally, the Lord is furious with you. Jehoshaphat had everything to lose and nothing to gain. He had nothing to gain because the Lord had already given him everything. It is the will of God that has made us who we are, and we are accountable for what we do with what he has given to us. The centerpiece of this chapter, verses 4 through 27, provides a second principle. 
<clears throat> here we see that God is at work for his purpose in and through, but also against human forms of planning and power. Now, I realize that is a lot of prepositions, especially for one sentence. But when God is at work, you need prepositions. What the writer is showing us here in this scene as it unfolds is that God is at work for his purpose in and through, but also against human forms of planning and power. Before matters progress further, Jehoshaphat, there in verse 4, makes a simple suggestion. Why don't we see what the word of the Lord is on this? So according to verse 5, Ahab, the king of Israel, summoned the prophets, 400 of them. That's a four with two zeros. And he said to them, gentlemen, shall we go to war with Ramoth Gilead or not? And they all replied, go up and God will give it into the hand of the king. Well, Jehoshaphat is still not convinced. So he asks, verse 6, excuse me. Do you happen to have a prophet of the Lord around here? Ahab responds reluctantly, verse 7, I was afraid you'd ask. Yes, there is one prophet by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. He's got an attitude. He always prophesies disaster for me. I ask him, what's the good word? He says, there isn't one. His name is Micaiah. So in verse 8, Ahab gave the order that Micaiah be brought quickly. Well, fortunately for us, it was skit day in the kingdom. And while they're off getting Micaiah, these 400 prophets are putting on a little skit for the kings. Verse 9 says that Ahab the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat the king of Judah were sitting each upon his throne, clad in robes, there in a plaza at the entrance to the gate of Samaria, where all of the prophets were prophesying before them. They even had props, the text shows us. Verse 11, they're crying out, go for it. Go up against Ramoth Gilead. Enjoy success. Be all that you can be, O king, for the Lord has given it into your hand. You know, this is remarkable. 400 religious leaders in agreement. <laughs> A unanimous word from the Lord, right? But have you noticed the absence of truth in crowds? The more people, the less truth. And yet we have somehow deluded ourselves into thinking and operating as though integrity is strengthened by numbers. Since when is consensus a criterion of truth? Every day you and I experience the unreliability 
of the masses to know and live truth. If nine out of 10 doctors stranded on a desert island recommend something, that means your metabolism shouldn't be without it. If a book sells a million copies, that's accepted as the evidence that the book is excellent and important. If a majority of people are engaged in a certain kind of deviant moral behavior, somebody always proposes that the behavior must then be legitimate. We are living at a time when accreditation comes by approval of the masses, despite the fact that truth is not statistical and crowds are more often stupid and foolish than they are wise. We have 400 payroll prophets telling the king exactly what he wants to hear. Exactly what he'd better hear if they want to stay on payroll. Well, that messenger who went off to summon Micaiah appraises him of the situation in verse 12. Now remember, so far there are no dissenting voices or votes. Micaiah's response in verse 13 is simple and unequivocal. As the Lord lives, he says, I will speak only what my God tells me. I'd like to see that on our Trinity diplomas. You see, God was the one who directed his life. And so the word of God would be all and only what he would speak. So when he came to the king in verse 14, the king said to him, Well, Mr. Good News, shall we go up to Ramoth Gilead for battle? And Micaiah says, Oh, by all means, go up. Enjoy success. Be all that you can be, O king, for they will be given into your hand. Wait a minute. Didn't Micaiah just say that he would speak only what the Lord told him. He sounds just like the 400 here. He's telling the king exactly what the king wants to hear, and the king knows it. That's why the king says to him in verse 15, listen, bub, and that is in the Hebrew. <laughs> hear what he says. How many times do I have to command you to tell me only the truth in the name of the Lord? So in verse 16, Micaiah says, you got it, sir. I saw all Israel scattered upon the mountains like a flock without a shepherd. And the Lord said, these no longer have a master. Let each one return to his house in peace. At this point, verse 17, Ahab leans over to Jehoshaphat and says, now this is more like it. I told you he'd start singing the old doom and gloom real soon, tune. Well, Micaiah then gives Ahab and us a rare glimpse into the heavenly throne room of God. I'll give you a word from the Lord, Micaiah says in verse 18. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with the whole host of the heavens standing on his right and standing on his left. And the Lord said, 
who of you will go and entice the king of Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one spirit said this, and another spirit said that. And finally, a spirit came forth and stood before the Lord and said, Here am I, send me. I will go. I will entice him. And the Lord said to the spirit, But how will you do it? And the spirit said, I've got an idea. I'll go and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And the Lord said, excellent. You will succeed in enticing him. Go and be successful. So Ahab, sir, I will give it to you straight. The Lord has put a deceiving spirit into the mouth of these, your 400 prophets, because the Lord is promising you disaster. Now, this message from God is twofold. I think what's clear is that there would be disaster. The no shepherd, no master can mean only one thing. King Ahab is going to be killed. But just as clear is the fact that God was so fed up with the corruption of King Ahab. God so wanted the death of this rebellious ruler who was leading his people to the brink of destruction that the false assurances of the false prophets are actually a strategy on the part of God to seduce Ahab into the death trap of war. You see, God is allowing the modus operandi of this corrupt king to be his own undoing. God does that, you know. He allows those who oppose him to choose how they're going to go down. These payroll prophets are not just yes-men this time, though they may intend to be. They are, in fact, speaking exactly what God has sent them to say in spite of themselves. So the counsel of the false prophets intending to reflect the will and the desire of the king, in fact, accomplishes the will of God. The real issue in this text is, is the rule and the will of God in this world and among God's people and whether that rule can be obstructed or diverted by anyone or anything deliberate or incidental. The news here is good. The good news is that even incidental matters of everyday life play right into the will of God. Even incidental matters of everyday life play right into the will of God. Well, Zedekiah and the 400 prophets who had gone to a lot of work on their little skit were all very offended at this. The text tells us in verse 23 that the prophet Zedekiah came up to Micaiah, slapped him right in the face, and said, how'd you get the spirit, brother? The question here is how could there be such blindness on the part of God's people? How could there be such a callous disregard for the clear word of God 
The problem was not that Ahab was in a, incapable. The problem is never that God's people are incapable. There was not a single prophet or administrative official or man or woman on the streets of Samaria who was not up to living consciously and deliberately as a child of God. But they let their lives get flabby and indulgent. And they started listening to what the crowd had to say. After all, how can 400 religious leaders be wrong? This text raises weighty objections to our unreflective ways of going about our daily routines. Routines that become lives shaped and sanctioned by the crowd. The moral level of our society is an atrocity, and it keeps getting worse. The spiritual integrity of the church today is increasingly being compromised. And it's because the people of God and the servants of God continue to turn their lives over to the crowd. And so the crowd gets larger. And our lives get smaller. In the first century, Pliny the Elder said that the Romans, when they couldn't make a building beautiful, made it real big. What we fail to do well, we continue to make larger. We add dollars to our income and rooms to our houses and activities to our schedules and appointments to our calendars and the quality of life diminishes with each addition. We have retrieval systems for our computers in case we inadvertently lose data. But where is a retrieval system for our lives when we knowingly lose touch with God? Is it not in aligning and opening our minds and hearts to hear the word of God again? Is it not in aligning my will, important and essential as it may be, with another will, the divine will, which is more important and more essential than mine will ever be? We bring ourselves back by responding in holy obedience to the word of God. Now's the time to take your life back. This morning is the time to retrieve your life from the crowd and to respond in obedience to God's call and claim on your life. Our final principle comes from verses 28 to 34. Here the text will show us that to ignore the will of God puts us and the people of God at great risk. Both Ahab and Jehoshaphat would have to learn the old-fashioned way, that is, the hard way, that the will of God cannot be outmaneuvered. The will of God cannot be outmaneuvered. The text tells us at verse 28 that Ahab, the king of Israel, and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead. 
But if you look real close at the text, you'll see that for some reason, King Ahab decides to dress down for the day. He says in verse 29, I will go into battle in disguise, but you go ahead, Jehoshaphat, and, and wear your royal robes. Uh, you're my guest. Uh, you can be king for the day. So Ahab, king of Israel, disguised himself, and they went into battle. Is this one of, is this one of those incidentals? Well, it just so happened that the king of the Arameans, verse 30, had given orders to its chariot captains saying, do not fight with just anyone today, fight only with the king of Israel. So when the chariot captains saw Jehoshaphat, they thought he was the king of Israel and they surrounded him in order to attack him. But this is not what God wanted. Please don't miss how it was exactly that Jehoshaphat escaped that day. The text is crystal clear here. Verse 32 says that Jehoshaphat cried out. But we are not allowed to think that it was the shout that sent the Arameans in retreat. Because the text immediately says... The Lord helped him. And again, and God drew them away. Because that is not what God wanted to happen. New problem. How will they ever find Ahab? Our camera pans over to a distant bunker. We see a couple of Syrian soldiers, for whom it's been a pretty slow day, about ready to wrap it up. Hey, how about one for the old Gipper? Yeah, great idea. Would you like to? No, no, it's your turn. So the text of verse 33 tells us that a certain man drew a bow at full strength, and struck the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. Lucky shot. Hardly. This was the will of God. God said it was his will. To ignore the will of God puts us and the people of God at great risk. Jehoshaphat was in the middle of a battle which he should never have been fighting at no small risk to his life and the lives of God's people. And yet, God graciously and unexplainably delivers him. My friends, the will of God knows no obstacles. What God desires knows no obstacles. Those royal robes that Jehoshaphat was wearing were not an obstacle to God's deliverance. And the disguised Ahab, running around the battlefield incognito, or in whatever he was wearing, was still a marked man. And while he may have been a hero, while he may have been an inspiration to his 
to his people, propped up in his chariot, as verse 34 tells us, wincing in pain, biting the bullet, bleeding to death in the battle as it raged that day. He was fighting a battle that he would never win because he chose to be resistant to God. Knowledge of the will of God must be allowed to affect every aspect of our lives. The purposes of God, far from ending our responsibility, require of us bold action, a new course of action. The purposes of God do not mean the end of our competence, the end of our planning. They constitute the very ground for it. So what this means is that our lives and our plans must always be responsive and faithful to God's revealed will and plan because God is at work for his purpose in and through but also against human forms of planning and power. That is why trust is possible. That's why we can trust him. Because God is faithful, and God is powerful, and God is at work for his purpose in and through, but also against human forms of planning and power. So God continues to work out his will through and in spite of me. He continues to work out his will through and in spite of you. God continues to work out his plan through and in spite of the fact that you did not get the job you were promised. God continues to work out his will through and in spite of the fact that you were downsized. God continues to work out his will through and in spite of the fact that that loan fell through. God continues to work out his will through and in spite of the fact that you're going to have to spend a little time in the hospital. God will work out his purpose through and in spite of that crisis, through and in spite of that employer, through and in spite of that illness, through and in spite of those finances, through and in spite of that disappointment, through and in spite of us. You see, God continues to accomplish his will through and in spite of us because God has a future for his people. He has a future for those who belong to him through the work of Jesus Christ. And it is a future that will be worked out in the context of our everyday lives. So this summer and the rest of this year is in the hand of God, not your employer, not your physician, not world leaders, not the special interest groups, and especially not the media. Your life is in the hand of God, not circumstances. And the Lord will be faithful in a variety of ways. 
Our responsibility is to be faithful, to be responsive to him, and to what he desires to do in our lives and in his world. If we allow our knowledge of the will of God to affect every aspect of our lives, then we will be able to live where we all must live. Not above the circumstances. Nobody lives there. But right on through them. To the glory of God. Amen. Gracious Father, we ask that you would imprint your word upon our hearts and minds this day. We pray that through your spirit we will not only have understanding and comprehension of your truth, but that in each of our lives you will highlight ways and areas in which we can appropriate that truth and continue to be transformed by your power. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the ability to understand it. We thank you for what you are going to accomplish through that word in each of our lives in the days ahead. For Jesus' sake, amen.